0: So we are again, uh, by way of reminder, we are in the beginning stages of a series on the Sermon on the Mount and we are starting with these famous Beatitudes. Right here at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives the description of a Christian. A Christian is someone who has entered the kingdom of God, by faith. They have put their trust in Jesus as their Savior, as their Lord, and they enter into His kingdom. Because remember, Jesus, when He began His public ministry, He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So when you do that, when you put your trust in Jesus, you turn away from your sin and you embrace Him by faith, you become a member of His kingdom. You become part of His kingdom. And that means, therefore... That your entire life is changed because the king reorders it. He reorders your life according to his values, according to his priorities, according to his agenda. Okay? So your inner self is changed. We saw that in the first several Beatitudes. You are no longer a proud person. You are a meek person. Your desires have changed. You now long for purity. You long to be holy and righteous, just as God is holy and righteous. And what what that means is is that you no longer desire the things of the flesh or the things of the world in the same way that you used to. Your spiritual taste buds changed. You want virtue, not vice, you know? You want the things of God, not the things of the world. These are the inner changes that come about in you. But then outer changes happen to you as well. We talked about this last week, I think. Did we talk about this last week? Merciful, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Yes, we did talk about that last week about how you now empathize with those who are suffering under the weight of sin, those who have maybe caused the problems in their own lives themselves or they've been victims of someone else's sin that has affected them negatively. Regardless, you have compassion and your desire is to relieve that suffering, regardless of what the cause is. Now... These changes that happen in us, these inner changes and these outer changes, they do not happen overnight. Now I wanna I wanna be I wanna be honest with you. I, I want to challenge some of you. To look into your life and to examine your life and to say, do I see these characteristics that we've been describing, that that, that Jesus is bringing about or pointing out to us in these Beatitudes? Do I see these characteristics? Do I see these, these qualities in me? You've got to be honest. You've got to take a, a serious inside look at yourself. And maybe some of you have to really wrestle with whether or not you have the kingdom of God. Because you see, you can go to church for a long time, actually. You can come to services. You can go through the liturgy week after week. You can listen to the sermons. You can put money in the offering plate. You can do kind of all these things without ever actually having entered the kingdom of God by faith. You haven't actually given yourself to Jesus Christ. And so some of you maybe have to wrestle with that. As you look at these qualities that are described in the Beatitudes, and you look at your own life, and you see absolutely nothing there, you got ask. Ask yourself, well, have I really given myself to the Lord? And yet at the same time, I don't want to undermine the assurance of salvation that those of you who truly love Jesus have. I don't want to cause someone who, who really puts their trust in Him and says, you know, I do love God, and I, I love Him with all my heart. And you examine your life, and you say to yourself, uh, I, I'm looking for these qualities, and maybe I see some of them, but I, I don't really see all of them, or what I do see is just so tiny, and, and Jesus seems to make it look so big. you got to understand that being a Christian you come to faith in Jesus and so you're justified. Meaning that, that now God looks at you and he doesn't see a person who's, who's to be punished for their sin. He sees a person who he embraces as his own child through Jesus Christ. That's justification. So it's a legal term that basically describes that moment when your relationship with God changes. Okay? But even though that happens in a moment... This whole process of being coming like what Jesus describes here in chapter 5, that takes a lifetime. Being a Christian is all about kind of becoming what you are, you see. And we see this actually in the Beatitudes that we're looking at this morning, which is, you don't even know, I'll tell you. <laughs> it's verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children children of God, what does that mean to be a child of God? Well, it means a whole bunch of things, but one of the things we know it certainly means is that when you're a child, you resemble your parent in some way. So, you know, someone says, oh, that, that kid, they're the spitting image of their mo- mother. You know, she looks just like her mom. But I got to tell you, when a baby is newborn... Okay, we're talking days old, maybe weeks old. Then of course, you know, I gotta come see the baby, because I'm the pastor, and you know, I wanna see the baby, and families, parents want you to see the baby, and your friends, you know, you've had a baby, you want your friend, you gotta see the baby. Everybody's gotta come and see the baby. So you go and you look at the baby, and usually I go with Jessica to see a baby, and then Jessica and the mom, and I hate to say this, this women do this a lot more than men. They say, Oh, look at that, yeah. He's got his father's nose. Or, oh, oh, do you see that? Oh, I think she's got her mom's eyes. And the fact is, people, no, they don't. <laughs> Newborn babies are squishy, scrunchy little things that don't look like anybody yet. Now, it's true. Eventually, this child is going to start showing character traits and start showing physical traits that, that make you say, oh yeah, I see the mom, or yeah, I see the dad in the child. But it doesn't happen right away. And the, the same is true for you. When you become a Christian, you are born again. That's what the Bible says. You are spiritually born again. And so you may not look an awful lot like your spiritual father yet. You may not resemble your older brother. The, the, the Lord Jesus Christ is described as our big brother, in the bible and you may not look an awful lot like him yet but 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 you will see these qualities developing in you over time you're becoming more and more like jesus and you know we're all a long way from being like jesus but that doesn't mean that there's no progress at all i just want to lay that out for you we have a change that's inner we have a change that happens In our relationships that's an outer change and now we're going to talk this morning about one more change that happens to us and that's a change in your direction in life you have a new purpose when you enter the kingdom of god your purpose for being here your purpose for existence your purpose for walking the face of the earth is changed you now become a peacemaker that's your purpose Now, you can ask the question, why are we here? And, uh, you know, you can use our Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Shorter Catechism says, uh, what is the chief end of human beings? It is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's absolutely true. And you can use that kind of language to explain why we're here on this earth. But you could also say, well, how do I glorify God while I'm here on this earth? How do I achieve that goal? Well, you could say it's through peacemaking. And that's what we're going to see and and look at and unpack together for a few minutes this morning. Now, let me just explain that this is actually sort of a two-parter sermon. Part one is today. Part two, Lord willing, is next week. Okay? Because remember, it says, "Blessed Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. They will resemble their father. They will be like Jesus. Okay, well, who is Jesus? The Bible describes Jesus as the Prince of Peace. But the Prince of Peace, you've got to understand, what does he look like? He has nails. He has thorns. He has a spear. In his side. This is why verses 10 and 11 say, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You see, if you are going to be a kingdom person, if you're going to be a peacemaker, you are going to take it in the chops sometime. You're going to re. Be on the receiving end of slander, insults, of discrimination, of reviling, however you want to describe it. That is going to happen to you. Why? Because you're a peacemaker. And so, this is part one of of the two-parter. Being a peacemaker, and then you come back next week, and you find out what it's like to be persecuted for being a peacemaker. Because that's how Jesus' logic works. Jesus' logic is, if you're you're in my kingdom, you will be like this. Oh, and by the way, the consequences of which will be this. Okay? So let's have a look together at this idea, at this concept of peacemaking that Jesus lays out for us. What is a peacemaker? Well, sometimes it's helpful to know what something isn't, to better define what something is. And so let's talk about what a peacemaker is not, and that is a peacekeeper. A lot of people get this confused. They read this and they say, you know, it's kind of like, like peacekeeping. You know, a person who is a peacemaker, they're that kind of person who is sort of easygoing. You know, they're pretty laid back. They, they, they don't get their feathers ruffled very easily. They're kind kind of chill, you know. They avoid confrontation and they're not combative and that kind of thing. They have that, that kind of personality. So if you're an Enneagram follower, you're a nine. And if you're a DISC follower, you're an S supporter. And if you're a kind of a Myers-Briggs person, then you say, yeah, you know, they're an ENFJ, that kind of person. This is my wife, okay? This is Jessica and a lot of other people. People who like to keep the peace. People who like to avoid conflict. But that's not the same as being a peacemaker, you see. Because these beatitudes, they don't actually describe anybody's natural disposition. There's nobody who is a natural peacemaker. The nines and the ENFJs or whatever it's called. Or ENF, EFNJ or, you know. It's not a natural disposition. And so it, sometimes peacekeepers uh, are people pleasers. Sometimes they have the idolatry of fear of man or or fear of woman, fear of people, fear of disappointment. They're appeasers, but that does not make them necessarily a peacemaker. So so the state of peace, according to the Bible, is not simply a state of non-conflict, right? Where, you know, you sit around the table on This is is good, okay? It's Easter and you've got a family gathering together and you're sitting around the table and everybody's smiling and, you know, there's grudges between siblings that have gone on for decades. I'm talking about when you're an adult and you're getting together with your family, not when you're just a, a kid because kids are smart. They fight out in the open and they have at it. Old people, when you get adult, you know, for the sake of keeping the peace, we don't say anything. So everybody's got a big smile on their face. Yep, pass the cranberry sauce. Thank you very much. Meanwhile, underneath, you're still mad about them stealing your, you know, your, your toy from when you were a little kid or maybe they messed you up in a business transaction or they slandered you to a friend, whatever. And we don't say anything about it. And we're in a state of non-conflict. But we are not in a state of peace, according to the Bible. Because you see in the Bible, peace, the Hebrew word shalom that many of you are probably familiar with. If you've never heard of it, it's just the Hebrew word for peace. It is a far more rich concept than simply non-conflict. It has to do with human flourishing. A state of peace is a peace in which which human beings are are fulfilled and satisfied and living out of the the purposes for which they were created and the welfare of all people are being met. And it's it's always tied in the Bible to righteousness and justice. These concepts of of righteousness and justice, wherever you find those things being followed, being uh, chased, being sought after, you always see peace. But if you don't see those things, you can have non-conflict, but you can't have real peace. So, peacekeeping is not what Jesus had in mind when he said, blessed are the peacemakers. Well, what did he have in mind? Well, it helps, again, to remember what he says. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. He connects being a child of God to being a peacemaker. And so you look at God and what is he like and what do you see in Jesus? You see the ultimate peacemaker. You see in God that God himself is a God of peace. You see, here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that that humankind is at war with with God. We are at war with our creator. We are in a state of conflict with him. We are hostile toward him. Now, if you're a non-Christian, you hear me say that, and you go, I don't know what you're talking about, preacher man, but I'm not in a state of war against God. I'm not hostile toward God. I just don't have any interest in God. I don't believe He exists, and I don't really worry about it, whether He does or He doesn't. And so I'm not in conflict. I'm not in war. I just don't really care. But the Bible begs to differ. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, he says, the mind governed by the flesh, which is a synonym for being a non-Christian, for not believing in Jesus. You have a mind that is governed by the flesh. That mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Did you hear that? See, the problem is, is that we, in our natural state, we do not submit to God's law. And we're unable to submit to God's law. And what does that mean? Well, that's a huge thing in and of itself. Could take a whole sermon or series of sermons on its own. So I'm just going to boil it down to its most basic parts. The same thing Jesus said when he was asked, what's the law? He said, this is the law. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law. In other words, if you're not... Putting God first in your life, if you're not submitting to God's rightful place in your life as the ruler of your life, as the one who decides for you what makes life worth living and how that life ought to be lived, if you're saying to God, look, I'm doing things my own way, you're not submitting to God. And you're at war with Him. But here's the funny thing, you know, you can be a Christian and you can be At war with God, too. You might say to yourself, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I'm not at war with God. I love Jesus. Jesus is more important to me than, than anything else in the world. Okay, I'll believe you. You're not at war with God. I won't speak on your behalf. I'll just speak on my own. I love Jesus and I want him to rule over my life. I want him to be king of my kingdom I want to live for his kingdom rather than my own. And yet, and yet, when I'm disappointed, when I don't get what I want, there's something that I really, really desire and, and I want to have this thing and I believe this thing would be really good for me and really important for me. Or perhaps I have plans that I'm making and I have goals that I'm going for. And those plans keep getting thwarted, you know, and those goals keep, keep getting placed further out of my reach rather than closer into my reach. I see these things happen. What do I do? I go to the cross. And do I say, well, I look at the cross of Jesus Christ and it consoles me over the things that I desire and the things that I want that I'm not getting. I look at the cross and I say, it's okay because I have Jesus Christ and he is far more worth he is worth far more than having any of these these simple desires and so i can live without those things because i know i have him and having him is something that i will not ever lose do i do that no i look at the cross and i say what good is this cross when I'm not getting what I want, when my life's not going the way I want it to go, when I'm not achieving the goals I'm after, when I'm not experiencing the joys that I think will make me happy. That's how it works, at least in my life. And you know, it's interesting about this. I've got to spend all week thinking about the dynamics of this at play in my own heart. and You know, it's It's this enmity with God that sits sort of dormant for a long, long time. It can be very, very quiet. You don't even know it's there most of the time. You're not thinking about it, but then all of a sudden it pops up. You guys, it's like smog. Not smog like smog over Harbour, smog the dragon. Now, this is from The Hobbit, and, and I confess, I think the movies have utterly destroyed the, the real story, but I am going to use the movies. Who is Smog? Smog is this dragon, and dragons love gold. And, and Smog lives under this mountain, and he sleeps on a, on, a, on a huge pile of gold. And he's dormant, and he's hibernating, and he's just like asleep. But of course, the, dr- the dwarves want the Arkenstone from Smog, and so they get Bilbo Baggins, the, the burglar, to go in and, in a very sneaky way, try to steal the Arkenstone from, from right out from underneath Smog's nose. But what happens? Smog wakes up, right? You have crossed his will. And what does Smog do? He erupts in violence, he erupts in, in anger, he erupts and he, he goes to destroy the people of Watertown. Well, here's the gospel. Here is the gospel telling me that if I put my trust in Jesus and I give my heart to him, that he will take care of me and he will watch over me. But then, you know, I've got this will. I've got this desires. I've got these things that, that are really, really important to me. And they, it sits very low under the surface. It's dormant for a while, you know. Life is carrying on and I'm accomplishing things and I'm getting things done, etc. But then as soon as God sends something into my life and it crosses my will, What happens? I erupt like smog. Now, I can't breathe fire and cause devastation over the town of Dundas, so my eruptions look very, very different than smog's eruptions, and maybe you're a little better at maintaining a a, a certain sense of propriety in your life, so your eruptions are even less visual or or, uh, obvious than my own. But this is what lives in our hearts. And the gospel is that that God the Father sent Jesus the Son to make peace with us. When we pull our swords up in in rebellion against the God who who created us and loves us beyond our wildest dreams, He sent Jesus into the world. And what does Isaiah 53 say? It says He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. See, Jesus came to end the war between us and God. He took the punishment that You and I, the rebels that we are by nature, he took that punishment on himself. Why? So that we could be reconciled to God. We 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 talked about it in our in our time of confession, or we referred to it in in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, when you look at the cross, Jesus disarms your rebellion. Faith is basically saying, you know what? I finally understand. I finally see it. I have spent my life fighting against my Savior. I have been kicking against the pricks. I have been saying to God and to Jesus, I know better how things ought to go in my life and I know better than you do and I am going to a la Frank Sinatra. I'm going to do it my way. And saying, you know what? I've started to see how in all this fighting, I'm the one getting beaten. I'm the one who's battered. I'm the one who's bruised by this self-will of mine. No more. It's to take that sword out of its sheath and rather than, than raise it in, in rebellion against God, to take it and lay it at the foot of the cross and to say, I am disarmed, no more will I rule my life, but Jesus, you my Savior, you are my Lord. You have peace with God. And that enables and empowers you actually to become a peacemaker, just like your Savior, right? Here's the main form of peacemaking, friends. It's evangelism. It's telling others, you're at war with God. And you need to lay down your weapons and receive Him by faith and end this war. Sometimes you'll do it explicitly, like I'm doing it now, like a preacher saying, you're at war, don't be at war. You'll probably be better at it Even if you're explicit, you'll say, let me tell you about how I was at war with God and how God made peace with me through Jesus. But oftentimes, it'll be less explicit, you know. You'll have friends or you'll have colleagues or you'll have whomever, maybe a family member. And you'll just sort of ask questions, wise questions, thoughtful questions, prodding questions, gently Encouraging them to evaluate their lives. But surely it means that you won't run from conflict. In fact, you'll, when possible and when wise, you will lean in. You're not quarrelsome. You're not confrontational. You're not all up in people's faces. But you're also not afraid to engage people. You're not afraid to speak the truth, that you do speak in love, of course. Remember, the war that most people are at with God is rarely overt. It's rarely very easy to see. Often, it's, it's quite subtle, and so you'll have to be on the lookout to see the warring spirit, even in your Christian friends. So, for example, okay, you have a friend who's kind of wallowing in self-pity. Their life, from their perspective, is lousy. It's not turning out the way they wanted. They've got problems in their lives and they've got experiences that have caused them to, to feel a little bit like they're getting a raw deal. And you show compassion and you show sympathy and you show understanding because maybe you've experienced some of these disappointments in your life as well. Maybe you have been in times of self-pity yourself. But, but you'll, you'll take the step to remind them of all those riches that they have in Christ. You'll you'll give them the biblical perspective on their problems. You'll help them see from a biblical point of view what it is that's going on in their lives causing this sense of self-pity and and how can they use the gospel to correct it. What does Psalm 73 say? Psalm 73 says, Whom do I have in heaven but you? And on earth I desire nothing but you. C.S. Lewis once said that he who has God and everything else has no more Than he who has God alone. Now, that is hard to take. That is hard to believe. That's why Christianity isn't a, you know, real Christianity isn't exactly a popular religion with people when you first explain it to them. And you say to them, look, life might be full of suffering this life might be might be full of hardship and disappointments etc but don't forget this life is simply the training ground for the life to come and you say that to someone whose life sucks and they're, 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 they're caught in this cycle of just spiraling inward and downward and you want to say to them stop your self pity remember that Jesus has told you he will never ultimately withhold any good gift from you you may not receive it in this life but in the next life you will and that's a tough thing to say Because it's a tough thing often to believe. But you will have the courage, if you're a peacemaker, to speak that as gently as you can and as effectively as you can and as winsomely as you can. But you will at least try to speak it. Or let's say you have a friend or a family member or someone in your life who is embracing a lifestyle that you know is just contrary to Scripture. It's popular. It's normal. According to the world's way of understanding things, it's, it's just how people live, but it runs contrary to the will of God. You will try to restore them. You'll call them to faithfulness. You'll show them the truth. You'll show them, you look, you're at war with your God here. And and that's a risk, okay, because you may lose a friend. You may lose a family member who won't talk to you anymore. You may lose uh, uh, status in society because you're really running against the grain. Remember... uh Everywhere you find the peace of God, it's where truth, justice, and righteousness are found. That's where peace is. So you're going to have to stand up for things that are unpopular at times. You might have to stand up for the unborn in our culture. You'll have to stand with the poor. You'll have to stand for the oppressed or those who have have, have been racialized. And you speak up and stand up for them whenever you see it. And it's a risk because you might lose your status in polite society. You might get canceled. Maybe. But listen. The work of peacemaking, friends, it's the work of healing. Have you ever heard of something called kintsugi? Probably a lot of you have heard of it better than me and know how to say it. Did I say it wrong? I may have. Kintsugi, it's this this Japanese form of art where they take clay pots that are broken. And they put it back together again, but they don't put them back together in the original form. They take pure gold and they mend the seams, the, the breakage, the fissures, they mend those with these pure, pure bits of gold and, and it heals the fissures so that they, this, this pot is different, but it's also more, it's stronger and it's more beautiful than it was before. I've got a picture of one. Isn't that beautiful? But here's the thing. The, 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 the gold that is used to mend this pot that was broken actually enhances its beauty. It makes it more beautiful for having been broken and, and restored. And this is the amazing promises that God gives us in the gospel. In, in 2 Corinthians 4. God says something that is just hard to swallow unless Jesus did this first. He says this, verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 4, We do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed by day by day. For the light and momentary troubles, our light and momentary troubles, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes on what is unseen, not on what is seen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Oh, can you put that up again? The, the bowl? A peacemaker sees the brokenness of our relationships within the church and outside the church. A peacemaker sees the, the harm that, that the way we operate as a society has on certain uh, subgroups of of our population and says, I'm going to speak truth into that. I'm going to seek to restore that. I'm going to try to bring people to the table where they can can sit across from one another and learn from one another and be restored to one another. It's hard work. It's risky work. It may even cause a a lot of pain and suffering in your own life. But here's here's the goal. Here's the promise. Restored to even God. Greater beauty than it had before. This is the work of Christ in our lives. This is our work as peacemakers in the world. Let's pray. Father, the scars of the Kinsuki Sugi pot. Those scars, they tell the story of healing and restoration, not destruction. Father, as peacemakers, make us willing and able to to lean into conflict where we see it, speak truth and love where we see it, even at the risk of our own status so that we might see scars that tell the story of healing and restoration. Do this, we ask, for your glory. Do this, we ask, because in doing it, we we are resembling the God of peace and our Lord Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who we want to be like. In his name we pray, amen. So at this time, if you are in grade five or six, you are free to attend Sermon Breakout if you would like to. Uh, It's in the Safe Families Room. Uh, There's, Lord willing, going to be an adult there with you. And you guys can uh, talk about the sermon. And we have an opportunity also to talk a bit about the sermon if we want. Uh, If you have any questions that you would like to share at this time. question for clarification or or application uh, you can text my number Um, it's on the screen soon Uh, or you can just raise your hand and ask me as well any questions I should plant questions so oh good a question go ahead Ruben yeah um, well, certainly when you're speaking the truth to a christian you you should know your Bible so that you can speak the truth with scripture and you can Lord willing bring conviction through the Word because it is God's word ultimately that brings conviction right and so that's where you want to go, certainly when you're speaking with a a, uh, a Christian who needs correction let's say or or Christians who have uh, a breakdown or a conflict in a relationship and neither of them are making the first move to, to bring restoration so you're trying to broker that um, when you're speaking truth with non-Christians like I said uh, I think that one of the strategies that is definitely worth uh, considering is basically the strategy of Pascal This I know this goes back to like the 1600s but he is a really smart guy and uh, he realized already back then that that when you're speaking to a non-Christian or an unbeliever who doesn't hold to the same sort of framework that you do about life and, you know, what the good life is, etc. What you want to do is you want to find ways to show them that the truth of Scripture aligns better with reality than perhaps their own interpretation of reality so that they, even if they don't believe Christianity is true, they want to believe that Christianity is true. So for example, you know what's very hot in our culture right now to talk about is, um, is uh, sort of racial tension. Like how are we going to overcome racial tension? And so you say, well, what if there was a way that, that someone was able to demonstrate to the world that look, every human being actually is on the same footing, that there are no better people or better cultures than, than, than others, but that we are all you know, part of the same family, et cetera. What is going to drive that kind of, that kind of uh, attitude towards reconciliation? Well, you can say then, if they say, yeah, that would be great, but then you could say, well, you know, there have been attempts made at doing this, but the only attempts made that, that have a strong foundation in, 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 in truth is the Christian perspective that all human beings are made in the image of God. And that therefore there is an inherent dignity that all human beings have that makes us all the same, where else can you find a philosophical foundation for the equality of rights and dignity of human beings? So you're taking a sort of side door approach to an issue with someone, trying to, trying to help them see that there are resources that the Christian faith has to deal with issues in the world, for example, that are not available in secular thought patterns, or worldviews, or social imaginaries, or philosophies, or all this kind of stuff. And I know, like, not everybody can take a a university level class in comparing Christian worldviews and non-Christian worldview to these things, but we do have this fantastic thing called a library at Grace Valley Church that has some great books that can help us learn how to do that, and if you're interested, i can point you to some of those resources um, okay here's the next question uh, it's a long question okay um, yeah so Basically, this question boils down to there are different interpretations of what God... There are different interpretations of what the Bible um, teaches regarding various lifestyles. So some people will say certain lifestyles are permitted by the Bible and other people will say, no, those certain lifestyles are not permitted by the Bible. What do you do when... Uh, Christians have a different interpretation of an issue with you. Well, I think—I mean, this may sound that maybe this isn't satisfactory to you, but but I think what you do is is you you ask that person to enter an a, an open and honest dialogue about our different interpretations, and you. Go through your arguments about why you believe the Bible teaches this way. And you listen openly and honestly to their arguments about, about why the Bible teaches another way. And the way you know you've done that is if you can actually uh, articulate their uh, perspective better than they can. So you may not agree with their perspective, but you know it so well and you understand it so well that if you were to give their argument, they would listen to you and say, Yeah, that's exactly what I think. And you have that dialogue of difference and and you start bringing church history into it. You start bringing, uh, you know, confessional documents into it. You start bringing the worldwide church into this conversation. And Lord willing, you know, you can change someone's mind. But I, I confess, that's not necessarily going to happen. But you can at least make the effort and... Be faithful to the word in making that effort. Oh, yes. Actually, yeah. So I got this. This is not a question, but someone said Ken Sandy. Ken Sandy runs a a ministry called Peacemakers Ministry. It's an excellent ministry in the States. And in a book um, called Peacemaking, I think, he categorizes these attitudes. You have peace faking, (laughs) which is the the around the table illustration I kind of gave you. Um, you're just avoiding. Peace-breaking, which is, you know, I believe in the truth to the degree that I will ruin our relationship for the sake of it, if necessary. So, aggression. And then there's peacemaking, which is truth and love. We want to be truth. We want to be peacemakers, not breakers or fakers.